It's like about the last sheep herders in uh, Montana. I think it's in Montana, Sweetgrass, Montana. And they take them like up into the mountains. But the, the very first scene in the film is them shearing all the all these sheep. It's really it's really incredible. Cool. Um, I don't know if you should. Yeah, maybe you should. Oh, is it? Will it make me not want to eat meat? I don't know. It didn't bother. It doesn't bother. Didn't bother me, but I'm not. You know, I don't have a a heart, so. <laughs> <laughs> this is Behind the Lens, a podcast from the Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, in a letter to a consulting firm hired by the company seeking to build a large grain elevator in St. John the Baptist Parish, the Army Corps of Engineers expressed concerns about the cumulative effects on public health while also rejecting the Cultural Resources Survey previously conducted on the company's behalf. A recent study found that only about 5% of 911 calls the New Orleans Police Department responded to last year were related to an alleged violent crime, and only around a quarter of those calls they responded to were crime-related at all. And Sheriff Susan Hudson has been asked to appear in front of a federal judge who oversees the long-running consent decree the jail has been operating under. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg. Hi, Josh. Hey, Carolyn. Criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle. Hey, Nick. Hey, Carolyn. And Lens editor Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hey, Carolyn. So, Josh, first up with you, we've known since June that the Army Corps of Engineers deemed a cultural resources survey for a proposed grain elevator project in St. John as insufficient. However, you learned this week that in the letter rejecting the survey, the Corps also raised concerns about the potential cumulative environmental and public health impacts the project may impose on the surrounding community. You also learned about the specific questions the Corps has about gaps in the firm's archaeological survey data. What did the letter tell us about the Corps' approach to this project? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, um, like you said, we have known uh, for some time now since June that the Cultural Resources Survey, a um, a, a firm submitted on behalf of of Greenfield, which is a company that is looking to to build this uh, grain elevator project. Um, The the consulting firm is called Gulf South Research Corporation. We've known since June that the the Army had reservations about this um, report that they submitted uh, they found it to be, you know, insufficient. But this week, we were able to actually obtain that letter itself uh, for the first time and report on it. And it shows that the Army, in, in a way that was um, surprising to some people I spoke to for the story, is really taking um, seriously some of the environmental justice concerns that have been raised about this project. And, and that um, that seems like a, a fairly interesting, at the very least, perhaps um, important uh, development in 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 this in this saga of um, the, the the army really asking Greenfield to explain how their project is not going to you know adversely impact the health of, of the surrounding community and and, and the environment um, in this community that has you know is is right in the center of uh all these other you know uh, a, a very dense concentration of industrial facilities anyway and 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 they're exposed um to to these pollutants 
on a regular basis, and, and, and the Army is asking Greenfield to, to say, your project may be within the, the, the bounds of, of, of whatever permit might allow for, but talk to us about the, the aggregate effect that mm. the, the people living here are going to be experiencing. How'd you get your hands on the letter? I have my ways, and um, <laughs> I, I probably don't want to say too much about it. You know, you don't to, reveal to your sources. Fun. Just yeah. a, a, yeah, a whistleblower, you know, a nice. It was, yep. It was it was it was shared with the lens. Let's 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 say that. Fair enough. Yeah. You know, it, it was um, the subject of a, a FOIA request, and and that you know FOIA request um, yielded this document, and you know. The rest is history. Tell us about the questions they had about the archaeological surveys. Yeah, so um, there were a couple um, points in in this report that Gulf South submitted that the the Army had questions about in terms of the the surveying uh, that they conducted. the The one is that there is this tract of land that has been deemed as deemed by this group back in the 90s as having a moderate probability of containing a prehistoric site. And um, that basically there, there, there was no survey data on that. And, and the army is saying, you know, how come there, there's no survey data on this? We, we, we'd like to know more about this or, you know, have you conducted a survey? What, you know, what did it find basically? And then the, the other interesting part was there is this known um, cemetery called uh, Willow Grove Cemetery, which, which is which is active, and the Army was saying that um, this report doesn't adequately document the boundaries of that cemetery. And you know, basically, my impression was uh, the the implication there is that if if you haven't adequately surveyed the boundaries of this known cemetery, mm-hmm. then you know there 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 may be a possibility that there, there, there may be uh, burial, you know, unmarked graves or whatever, or, or sites that are related to that cemetery that might be implicated here in what you're doing. So you really should go back and make sure that you've, you've got, you know, you've, you've squared that, square that away, you know? Right. You talk in the story about the um, opposition to this project, the residents, and they discuss the cumulative effects uh, in a really sort of poignant way. What specifically did the Army Corps of Engineers talk? How how did they specifically address cumulative effects on the residents? Yeah, um, absolutely. So there's this whole section dedicated to the Army's uh, environmental justice analysis. So, you know, first of all, it is it's very interesting that the, the, the Army at least in my opinion, is using the language of environmental justice yeah. um, in, in this circumstance. And, and that that also, you know, what is 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 like a new is something new for the residents who who've been uh, opposed to this project. They talk about um, the uh, PM 2.5 emissions from the facility. And I'm reading from the letter, the facility is permitted to emit a certain amount under its uh, its its minor source permit um, that that the, the project has been granted as opposed to a, you know a major source. But you know they're 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 asking can even uh, a minor source result in adverse health effects? And 
uh, a disproportionate impact. And, and then in the next sentence, they appear to kind of, you know, answer their, their own question here a little bit. Um, it seems uh, it is possible that minimal emissions may cause additional health burdens on an already highly environmentally polluted area. So they so, answer you know, in the affirmative. Exactly, exactly, which is fairly fascinating. It is noteworthy that the Army is interrogating this question, interrogating the this um, this project under its purview through the lens of, you know, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, for instance, rather than this is, you know, like, uh, everything is is compartmentalized in these different permits and and just so long as everything is is kosher within these you know separate discrete permits then everything's fine right. so it it's kind of a paradigm shift in, in that sense it's interesting so what happens now where where do things stand so the army is conducting its uh, its review of, of this project um, under section 106 of um, the, the National Historic Preservation Act. And um, eventually the, the Army would, would have to issue a permit for, for Greenfield in this case. There's separate litigation happening uh, concurrently as, as all this is going on with the, with the Army. The residents who are opposed to this project are challenging the underlying zoning ordinance, um, saying that that was um, uh, effectuated in a really corrupt way and, and it shouldn't be on the books. So that's ongoing. Um, you know, but in, in the background, you have this company Greenfield that is, that is, or, or at least was, you know, still, um, I, I want to say is, I mean, the, as uh, the most recent information I have is that they're, they're still actively engaged in um, what has been described at various times as pre-construction activity, mm. which is, which is their like um, pile driving these these beams in into the ground, um, which which is a very distressing thing for these residents who are opposed to this project, as 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 you might imagine, the 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 figure I saw on the um, uh, Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality's website was was that apparently there as of July, I believe, and you may not want to quote me on this, but as of July there are these forty seven beams in the ground. And um, what's interesting is that the uh, LDEQ characterized uh, that activity as like bona fide construction activity, whereas the, the judge in this case only authorized, you know, quote, pre-construction activity. So there's certain implications there, I believe, in terms of permitting. Um, that might be another discussion, but there, there are these, you know, these different moving parts. And, and it's, it's, it's interesting to see how it's going to go, how it's going to turn out. So I know we've seen kind of these uh, debates and, um, you know, kind of blurring of the line in, in construction, what is construction and what is pre-construction activities before. We certainly saw that out at the New Orleans East, uh, the new power plant out there, whether, you know, it was the company saying that they were just simply, you know, quote unquote, preparing the sites by bulldozing or, you know, grading the land. Um, but, you know, I think it is a really good question when this does get into actual construction activity, like Josh said, you know, there are, there are pilings in the ground that that certainly seems um, to be disruptive of, of the ground and, and more than just a pre-construction activity. A really cynical person might think that they have some inside track. And I would imagine that these, these giant 
piles or whatever. You, what did you call them? Beams, um, giant. Beams, beams. Yeah, they're Those, piles driving these beams. Okay, yeah. so you would imagine Large that map. that comes at yeah. great, great expense. And so all of this is just theater and that they know that the permit is forthcoming. It's just, you have to go through, I'm just being cynical. Be cynical. I invite that. And um, it is interesting because, you know, you're right. They are taking a risk in, you know, they're, maybe. they're, they're putting, may, maybe, maybe, right. Uh, to, to, to put, as you put it, from the, the army, for its part, the army at least has said that it is, you know, it has put Greenfield on notice that there, there is no guarantee that they're they're going to get this permit, and everything that they're doing in the meantime is at their own risk. So, yeah, you know whether whether Greenfield has the inside track here or not, um, I can't say. I obviously can't say for sure. I will say though that this case has gotten a whole lot of local and national, even international attention and scrutiny. And I, I would be very surprised personally if Greenfield were anticipating the level of scrutiny that this project has generated. And um, the, the fact that the army is, is taking you know, into consideration some of the, without directly naming the whistleblower, this this uh, whistleblower report that ProPublica uh, first reported on in May, even though the, the army isn't saying directly that, hey, we listened to this whistleblower, these are our concerns, please answer these concerns. They are kind of getting at some of the concerns that, um, you know, the, the, the whistleblower was, was, was talking about and some of the concerns that this concerned residents and, and other groups have raised. And that is interesting at the very least. So that's, mm-hmm. that's the other part of this as well. Okay. All right. Thank you, Josh. You're welcome. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are environmental reporter Joshua Rosenberg criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, and Lens editor Marta Jusen. Hi, I'm Ann Muller, Chief Operating Officer at The Lens. The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. We have a diverse set of financial supporters, including major national foundations, local foundations, and dedicated readers in the New Orleans area. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. Nick, we've got two stories for you with you today. A new study by the Vera Institute of Justice found that only about 5% of 911 calls last year the New Orleans Police Department responded to were related to an alleged violent crime. And only around a quarter of calls they responded to were crime-related at all. Vera says that the numbers show that the city needs to develop and invest in non-police responses to a wider range of calls for service, something city leaders have been discussing and moving forward with in various capacities for years. We talked about it last week. So that people can get the specific type of help they need and officers can be available more quickly for calls where a police response is appropriate. What does this study show? 
So like you said, the study um, shows that, that only around 5% of calls that police responded to in 2021 were related to, to violent crime. And the majority weren't related to crime at all. Um, the majority, over 50%, were what Vera sort of categorized as public order calls. Um, and, you know, to be honest, the the exact nature of all these calls is kind of hard to determine, and, and they are creating broader categories within various call dispositions. But, you know, you think of things like noise complaints or, or other disturbances that don't necessarily rise to the level of, of criminal activity. And then there are also emergency calls. There's, there's car accidents and uh, mental health emergencies was, was part of that that make up another pretty significant portion of, of 911 calls. So like you said, you know, this comes at a time when NOPD is, is short-staffed, uh, certainly by their own account and, and by, uh, you know, many people's accounts. And there is a, a significant level of violent crime and I think what Vera is, is kind of um, trying to argue is that we should be be reducing our reliance on the police in, in a lot of these instances where they're being called out and instead kind of find alternative responses for, for these emergencies. If you take this report at face value, does that change the equation of what kind of size of police force you would need if you could rewrite the entire system and respond appropriately, as they suggest, to these different calls? So police go to violent crimes only or whatever they would need. Doesn't that carve out a different size police force and then a differently trained other than police or how maybe there's two different tiers of policing or something? I mean, I think it depends entirely on who you ask. Um, I think that an organization like Vera would, would certainly agree that, you know, they've been proponents of investing in other sorts of, of public safety resources um, that aren't police. On the other hand, I think that, you know, a lot of people you would talk to would say, no, this, we need more police. We need more police. Maybe we need to, to take the police and have them focused only on violent crime. You know, I think, I do, I do think that the broad agreement here is that there are lots of calls that police are responding to that police should not be responding to. I think mm -hmm. the police, I think police officers feel that way. I think, you know, uh, regular citizens feel that way. I think, you know, uh, criminal justice reformers and people who, who are proponents of defunding the police feel that way. So I think that's the agreement. I don't know that that just because um, people agree that, that police aren't being utilized correctly, that they necessarily believe there should be less of them. And when they presented the study, what did they suggest that the city council should do? You know, their suggestions were, were relatively broad, but, but, you know, as we talked about, kind of providing these alternative response models. Um, so like we talked about last week, the city is, is developing right now uh, an alternative dispatch that specifically will focus on mental health crises. So when you call 911, and you report someone who's having a, a mental health or behavioral health crisis, that will be be routed to a, a different team of people, not not um, the police department, who will come out and and try and respond to the situation in, in a in a clinically appropriate way. Um, but I think you know we can think about other instances, traffic accidents. The city actually has been working with a company to 
respond to traffic accidents um, that aren't police, but it's, it's very small right now. Um, so I think that they're looking to expand that. And then there's also things that the communications district can do to kind of navigate what calls are, are the most important. And, and they actually just changed their protocols recently to kind of delineate between calls that are, are really immediate emergencies where there is something dangerous happening on the scene versus, you know, things that happened even days or weeks ago um, previously, kind of if you got, if you got a call for some for a serious crime, there was not a way for the communications district to to distinguish between that a crime like that happening uh, immediately versus, you know, something that had already already occurred. Okay, and this dovetails with our conversation last week, a bit about the the response, the the new 911 system. Yeah, that's right. Um, And this is that's something that Vera has been, you know, advocating for for a while is an alternative dispatch for for, uh, mental health crises and, you know, have also been advocating for for a large uh, sort of mental health wraparound services center um, that they say the city should use some of this one time uh, federal money that they got through through the American Rescue uh, Plan to to build and they estimate it's about about 40 million dollars for that so yeah this is all part of a broader conversation both you know about police resources and, and about kind of how to address more more systemic issues that they say are you know leading to to the crime in the first place hmm. okay second story in criminal justice this week a federal judge overseeing the jail's long-running consent decree ordered sheriff hudson to appear for a hearing this week what's that about yeah, so that that hearing occurred this morning, um, and I just got out of federal court. If you'll recall, back in August, the judge had a status conference, and Sheriff Hudson wasn't present at that one. But he he really ripped into to an attorney um, that works for her office uh, regarding lack of transparency there, and you know said basically we aren't getting any there's reports of violence and reports of incidents at the jail, but we're not getting any information um, on those. And so at, at the hearing today, it was kind of a, a follow-up to, to that conversation. And he said that while, while they're getting more information and kind of daily, more daily updates on, on what's going on at the jail, there still isn't really any information regarding follow-up investigations or, or what the office is doing you know, in response to these incidents. Um, so, so what he did was he ordered the, the sheriff's office to basically come up with a plan within two weeks, um, to address how to start informing both the court and then the other parties in the consent decree about how they're responding to, to critical incidents at the jail. How did she respond? Well, Hudson was there this time, but she didn't really participate in the meeting at all. Um, she left it to, to an attorney and he said, basically, you know, one, he said, they'll come up with a plan and that they're kind of attempting to get these processes in place to, to be more transparent, but really didn't have a, a clear answer for, for why, um, why this was, was taking so long. Um, and, you know, I'll say that, that from, from my perspective, I can, I can relate to some of this. I've been trying to get uh, information regarding um, incidents that occurred months ago um, and, hadn't gotten a response and then more recently got a response that that these things were still under investigation. But one of the interesting things that came out was that, 
you know, while investigating an incident can provide some exemption for public records requests, the plaintiff's attorneys who are part of the consent decree actually have an agreement with the sheriff's office that those exemptions don't apply to them. Um, but they're still not getting records. So mm-hmm. we know that that it's not entirely, you know, just us um, or or just because we're not entitled to them that the there has been an issue with uh, with with transparency kind of among all all the all the parties who who are are looking for information. You've been noting all along that uh, this is one of the one of the cornerstones or keystones of her campaign was to was to be contrary to the her predecessor to be more transparent to be more open to be more forthcoming and now it's being yeah that's right yeah and i think for the judge i mean the judge and the you know attorneys for the city and for the plaintiffs have you know obviously worked closely with the prior administration and and so far you know they've they've definitely indicated that things have got, have gotten worse under under hudson and as as i think we've noted there's obviously the sheriff's office is a huge office and and there are going to be some transitional issues when when you take over something like that and and you know you want to factor that in when when um when you have expectations of uh performance but at the same time now it's been you know how long yeah i was just going to ask you how long do we say it's transition time right what what's a fair exactly. what's a fair stopwatch on that yeah i don't know and it it's you know there's obviously no clear answer to that but um certainly there's been some some troubling indications hmm. I'll, I'll say i should have kind of led with this but one of the issues that the magistrate brought up in in the first place was that he hasn't received any information about death investigations regarding deaths that occurred back in june um hmm. So he basically said, we're totally in the dark about how this happened and, and what, what steps are being taken to, you know, figure out exactly how, how it occurred. So that is certainly a sort of troubling indication. Hmm. There's a theme I'm sensing in this podcast this week in these stories. It's lots of light being shed from unexpected sources sometimes on a questions that we keep bringing up. So it's great that there are other organizations asking the same questions. That's, that's my wrap up. Marta, <laughs> do you have anything? No, I, th- I think you hit the nail on the head there. That's, you know, that's one thing I always try to do at the lens is if we can't get information from one source, look for alternative measures and means. And then we get help sometimes. It's great. All right. I've got a lot of movie watching to do. Yeah, you have assignments. I do. I have assignments. I'll report back next week. Um, Thanks for your work this week. You guys have a good weekend. Thank you. Thank you. All right. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Joshua Rosenberg, Nick Krestel, and Lens editor, Marta Jusen. You can read all the week's other news and opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.